Welcome to the Vessel Talks podcast. And today I have with me Courtney Gerton, who is the founder and CTO of Ease.com. Courtney, welcome to the Vessel Talks podcast. It's an honor to have you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Definitely. How did you discover Ease.com? What was the intention and how did the idea come to fruition? Yeah, so I guess the journey started a long time ago, maybe 20 years ago now, honestly. Um, it was the, basically the seed that became Ease. And I was, I graduated from the University of Minnesota and the first company I was at, I didn't even know the word entrepreneur in, or, or a startup. I was just going into computer science and wanted a job and was introduced to the, the school guy. We ended up um, doing vertical CRMs. So we did one for the mm -hmm. real estate industry. We did one for financial advisors. And then we did one in the healthcare industry. And in that, it kind of opened my eyes of how fragmented, how chaotic, how heavily it was just paper, facts, Excel, and people doing things um, in a non-tech, you know, the concept of the cloud is pretty early in this, in these days, to be honest. So I can understand how a traditional insurance broker wasn't doing things in the cloud like you would obviously do today. But um, that's where it sort of started. And in that kind of, um, we would do some, when we were building this product, we would talk to customers and a customer in Minnesota, uh, his name is David Reed. He was an insurance broker who was fascinated by technology and what it could do. And so he was a very tech forward insurance broker, probably the most tech forward broker in America, probably at the time. Um, and he, uh, he gave a lot of feedback and we hit it off just because we were so excited about this particular um, application and, and what it could do. But uh, I had to put that on pause. I was actually, I had to scratch the itch of entrepreneurship. Um, I wanted to come out to San Francisco. And so Ease, my, my relationship with David started then, but Ease started a lot later, almost 10 years later, to be honest. And what ended up happening was I ended up making my way out to San Francisco in 2008 um, after a couple years of thinking about it. And uh, for anyone who's thinking about making the jump, please do it. it, it that move changed my life. And my, I have a story about that later as well, if we want to get into that. But the, what ended up happening is in 2012, um, I actually had another startup. So I, I, my journey to San Francisco was I worked at dig.com. I met a lot of cool people there and, um, and I can get into that, but I'll, I'll jump right into the uh, ease part. 2012, I had another company, but David pinged me. And what he ended up doing is he he was leveraging software solutions that he would kind of buy off the shelf or online and, and using it to kind of as an agency to help people and other insurance brokers do things digitally. He wanted his own software. And so we, had, it, we talked and he had a couple quotes from people who would actually, you know, perhaps build this for him. And um, he was just wanting my opinion. He knew I was able to scale things. He knew I knew a lot about this industry from past experience. And it ended up being that I was really fascinated about the idea again and knew there was a huge opportunity. And I kind of wanted a cash flow. Like my whole thought was I could probably partner with David and make $5,000 a month by building something on the side. And so that's what we did. I agreed. Uh, we came to basically an agreement that I would work part-time nights and weekends. He would do sales, marketing support, 
and we had like a set timeline when we get an MVP out. And we, uh, I was in San Francisco, he was in Las Vegas. So we're doing this all kind of remote. And we, um, we, we hit the ground running. Uh, we kind of came up with a plan. We started small. So E started with what's called medical underwriting, which is if you're a small medium business in the state of Minnesota, and you want to get health insurance from a medical carrier, you need to fill out an application, typically paper and pencil, and fill out your name, address, your, you know, your dependents, spouse, children, your whole health history. And there are four major carriers in uh, the state of Minnesota. And so you'd have to do that four times. Wow. Well, you can imagine how painstaking that is as an HR administrator, handing out all of those things, collecting them all, reviewing them all, because if they forgot a date or something like that, the carrier is mm -hmm. going to kick it back. So you have to review all these. Um, and so the insurance broker is just like, it's a nightmare. And we knew we could do a better job just simplifying that, streamlining that online. And that's what we did. So we started in Minnesota with four health carrier apps. What we did is we took the aggregate of all the questions, brought a, an employee through the experience one time, and they kind of had a DocuSign experience at the end. So I built the prototype and that kind of MVP in about 90 days. David had a really, he's a really good salesperson and had a good network in Minnesota because that's where he was from. And I don't know, 90 days later, we were ramen profitable, you know, so it had immediate product market fit. And from then it just gave me the energy to collaborate with David every day for a couple of years. We hit, you know, we, we bootstrapped this. Got it to, um, you know, close to a million dollars in revenue. But then everything changed with the onset of Zenefits. Mm -hmm. When they came to the, the scene, the, the world changed for the employee benefits industry and HR industry. They raised so much money and that everyone had to pay attention to basically uh, doing benefits administration and payroll yeah. online. And yeah. that really helped us. They, they, they helped us immensely. And with Zenefits, everything changed. And they ended up with all the fundraising that they had um, called every employer in America, basically. And was like, are you doing benefits online? Are you connected to payroll? And mm -hmm. if not, you should you know, come to us because we'll make it all easy. And so every HR person called their insurance broker, who's typically a friend, a cousin, you know, the local person in town um, that they've had a relationship with a long time. So there's a lot of trust with that relationship, but they called them up and were like, do you have technology? This, I hear, keep hearing about the Zenefits thing. And they had nowhere to go to except Ease. And so I decided then in 2014 to leave the other company I started. Um, I told the board and I gave kind of a, a pretty long window, a nine month kind of window of saying, hey, I'm gonna transition out at the end of the year. Um, let's hire another CTO. I'm going to go all in on my side project, which was um, called Enrollees at the time. And, 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 uh, and so we ended up raising money in March of 2015. And that's when things changed dramatically. We went from three full-time people or yeah, basically two or three full-time people and a couple contractors. Um, David moved from Vegas to San Francisco, so it could be under the same roof that allowed us to iterate faster. 
And um, we knew we had a, a big opportunity to basically catch the tsunami wave of everyone going to digital and being the platform for it. Right. So Ease really had kind of, I guess, two starting points. The one in 2012, mm -hmm. when we kind of kicked off the bootstrapping piece. And then in 2015, when we kicked off the, the venture capital. Both right. are kind of different goals, but um, uh, kind of same product, but at, at way different scales. Right. And then your exit was pretty impressive as well. You, I saw on Crunchbase that there was an acquisition that happened. You want to talk about yeah, that a little so, bit? Yeah. So, yeah. So, in the, it, it's, it, it's, an, it's wild. If you would ask me like a year ago today, if that acquisition would have happened in that merger, I would have said, no way. And so what ended up happening with this is Ease is unique that we empower um, insurance brokers, traditional insurance brokers. And what we do is we basically allow them to become like a gusto, become like a Zenefits, to do their business online. To, and we kind of have this phased approach. The first phase was get the trust of the insurance broker. With the trust of the insurance broker, they'll put their employer clients on our platform. And that is a rate, really great distribution channel. We don't have to call every employer like Zenefits was. Mm -hmm. And that kind of mode of empowering the broker versus disrupting the broker, because you hear about disruption all the time in Silicon right, Valley. Right, right. Everyone we gets were scared enabler. of the word disruption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were an enabler. And there's not that many enablers. Another big enabler um, that started a couple of years before us was Employee Navigator. And they started on the East Coast and they did really well. We started on the West Coast and kind of Midwest and we did really well. So it's kind of like you could draw a line in the Mississippi River and be like, <laughs> these people on the East, they own that. Ease is over here. And it's your turf. This is our turf. Yeah, it's our turf. Yeah. And, and we were kind of like, it was competitors. It's not like we sat For and sure. had like dartboards with each other or anything, but it was, they were competitors and they did a really good job and we did a really good job. And so basically what ended up happening is um, George, uh, who was at Employee Navigator, reached out and we had a very cordial conversation um, with both CEOs. Uh, it was not part of that initial conversation. Um, but uh, my co-founder pinged me afterwards and he's like, there's some good ideas here about we can go farther together. And uh, instead of beating up each other all the time, uh, we have a lot of similar clients. We work with the same insurance carriers. Let's, um, we can help the standardization because even though technology is, is um, helped streamline a lot of this, there's still so much fragmentation and so many uh, different systems. And so um, combining forces, uh, it's really, you know, a one-on-one -on -one equals four kind of scenario. And so collectively today, um, we have 13 million employees that we manage as an entire unit. Ease, wow. uh, we got, thank you. Yeah, we got to Ease, we had over 80,000 employers and over 3.5 million employees. We, brought, we would have crossed over 4 million by the end of this year on our own, but the combined force um, is, is very large. Um, and... We focus on different things too. There's some nuance here. Uh, employee navigators kind of wheelhouse was employers that are a hundred employees and above and their average employer group that was on their platform was probably closer to a hundred or over a hundred. 
ours was around 43 employees. Mm -hmm. So we cater to the, the small medium business, um, you know, the two to 500, our wheelhouse being under employers with under a hundred employees. Those are really impressive numbers, Courtney. You know, did you, when you first started this off after the venture, was there a moment of, I mean, there are always moments, these kind of moments, but in your opinion, as a CTO and co-founder, were there moments of doubt where it's like, wow, can we actually pull this off? Like, is this actually possible? Like, did you think it would get this big? You know, these numbers you just told me are like really, really impressive for, you know, any first or even second time founder to hit these kind of numbers. Yeah, I think the biggest one is um, different types of things of like, could we pull this off? So the company Mm -hmm. was working and it was profitable before we raised venture capital. So we knew there was a market there. I think Mm -hmm. one of the things were, it was a, um, Zenefits and things were indirect competition, but we had to play close attention. We needed really good feature parity. You know, they have certain systems. If they're gonna offer that to employer clients, our brokers are going to need to be able to do that. So we have to make a really easy to use platform. Um, a, a couple concerns we had, but uh, you know, just talking to customers um, helped us gain confidence was we needed the platform to be easy because we needed brokers to self-deploy these, meaning they were the ones putting all the groups on. And if we had any trouble with that, if there's any hesitation, any headache in a uh, broker could not put on a group on our platform due to we don't support the carrier or we can't support the, their their rate structure that they might have. So they can't display cost to employees. Um, we're not going to go that fast. A broker will put on one, two groups, hit a wall and go, eh, I, I'm, I'm going to think twice about putting the next group on. So we needed to make it really easy. And brokers are very dedicated, but they're not the most tech savvy. And they're busy. So you have to change their workflow. And when you're changing someone's, you know, they've been doing something the same way for 10, 20 years, some of these folks. Changing the way that they interact with their, their uh, all of their customers overnight is not an easy thing. So it's an ongoing thing. And we had to sit there and get feedback of, are we making it easy for you to add plans? Are we making mm-hmm. it easy for you, to, for your employer groups to be knowledgeable with uh, how to use everything? Because we're not your we're not the support for everyone. We're support for the broker. Or the broker supports the employer. So right, right. there was some concerns of can we do that at massive scale? Because mm-hmm. that's where Zenefit started to have some hiccups is trying to do everything at a certain level. Right. right. And so and it's I feel like, like a lot where of would things break. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So like where would things break? You'd see they're like. If you have too much demand for a service, you know, there's that fear of hey, can my systems and foundation will they implode? based mm-hmm. on all that, all that. And then sometimes, you know, you over engineer your systems and your processes where it's like you built this mammoth of a process, whether it's an SOP, a software, a way of doing a service, but then you don't have the the type of client volume you anticipated, right? So it's a teeter totter game that you're constantly playing. And, and you said a really good thing that caught my attention when you, when you said making that jump from where you were in Minnesota and going to San Francisco. Let's talk about that for a bit. You know, you made that jump, but it took you a couple of years thinking about that. But then you said, once you made the jump, everything changed for you. Do you feel if you made that jump a little bit earlier when you had that idea that you get much further? Yeah, I wonder what kind of opportunities would I had. I, I mm-hmm. maybe I'd be at Twitter or something. Um, maybe to be honest, and like because <laughs> I, I was so addicted to that service from afar. 
Um, mm-hmm. So basically, yeah, in, in when I graduated, you know, I was working at these startups, just so excited and uh, constantly, you know, seeking out uh, other people building. Like, I just love builders. Mm-hmm. So I'd follow all these different builders. Right. And I got lucky enough to meet this this really cool um, woman by the name Leah Culver. Um, she She's an incredible entrepreneur. She was in Minnesota. She was at the University of Minnesota. And um, I just kind of kept in touch and kind of followed her. She made the, the leap to San Francisco a couple years prior. And, you know, she's winning things at uh, hackathons. She's um, uh, collaborating on all these cool projects. And then she starts this um, project called Pounce. And Pounce was kind of an like a offshoot of Twitter. And, and I love that. And, and I reached out to her and was like, how can I help? And so, uh, but I, for whatever reason, wasn't, I made excuses for myself. Oh, I just bought a house. I can't leave you know, and, mm-hmm. um, oh, I got this freelance job. I'm, I have all these clients because at the time mm-hmm. I was freelancing. So I was, I was doing well. Um, and yeah, I had several clients and, and they were all in Minnesota and the concept of like, I had to go in and see them once in a while, but it was mostly remote, but the concept of like moving States just, it didn't click that you can just ask and go do that. Um, and so, but I think I was just putting up a, a wall for myself, uh, a little mm-hmm. self-doubt. And I went and visited uh, Leah a couple times and um, got introduced to Daniel Burka. You know, he's an incredible designer. He designed the Firefox logo and he was early designer at Dig and he's went off to do, do great things. Um, and it was Leah, um, Kevin Rose and uh, Daniel Burka that kind of created pounce. And so I hacked on pounce a little bit. Um, and it was, it was a really fun opportunity. Um, I didn't join full time. They didn't have enough salary for me to make the leap, but mm-hmm. I, uh, I enjoyed that. And that led me to kind of having a relationship with Kevin and Daniel who were both full time at dig. And, um, I finally just said, after meeting all these and the energy that you get, I was like, I just got to get out there. So it took a couple of visits with Leah and hanging out and seeing the city to finally just be like, you can rent your house, Courtney. It's okay. <laughs> and so did that and bought a one-way ticket out. Amazing. Amazing. And when you made that jump going to San Francisco, how did you adapt to all that? I mean, you, you obviously went full of energy, excited, new chapter of your life, all that. Was it scary? Was it exciting? What were you feeling? Yeah. After? I, I got, I had lucky my, uh, I have a, um, uh, a sister, stepsister in Los Gatos area. Um, and so I got to stay with her as I kind of checked out some stuff and, um, I did some freelancing on the side and then decided where I really wanted to go work. Um, it wasn't immediately that I had the job at dig actually, but I interviewed at dig and, and I interviewed at stumble upon. And the reason why I interviewed at both of those companies is because in 2008, both companies um, were in San Francisco. There weren't a lot of companies. There were a few, but it wasn't like it is today where like everyone has a presence, even VCs have a presence in San Francisco. So I wanted to be in San Francisco. I wanted to work in San Francisco. I didn't want to do the commute. And so that, um, that led me to, you know, meet Garrett Camp and all those other guys. And he went on to create Uber. And, and, and it was just really fun energy. And, and I eventually got the job at, uh, at Dig. So I moved up. 
um, October 4th of 2008 is when I uh, officially moved to San Francisco. Um, and it was awesome. I got, it, it was immediate, especially the dig community at the time and the, the team was um, next level talent, really fun, energetic, uh, lifelong friends through that experience. And the, the cool thing about it is everyone was a builder. So you'd, you'd talk about ideas for dig and then you, you know, afterwards mm -hmm. think about different things to build. And so you got to meet friends early at Twitter friends early yeah. at all these other companies and everyone's hanging out and mm -hmm. the people that are, um, you know, creating a lot of the technologies that we use today. Like we take it for granted, like OAuth or whatever is there. It's like Leah helped make that with some other folks. And, and it's just, it's just really uh, O embed, which is like this embed. You don't, you, you take for granted today that you go to a, a feed and the feed is showing the image and the feed is showing a video. Like, that wasn't the case in you know yeah. the early 2000s and so right. this kind of came to be around this time and like my friend group had impact on that you know and mm -hmm. and i got to build kind of the first feed into pounce with that and you yeah. know and so it was it was it was fun and that stuff mm -hmm. uh, i think really energized me and made me think of okay i i came here to to build and with cool people and uh and it gave me the confidence that I could go out on my own and actually be an entrepreneur. And that's what I did in, in 2010. Love it. Love it. And you know, you've come a, a really far away with looking at what you do on Twitter, looking at your LinkedIn, you made a couple checks, you know, from 10 to 50, $50,000 in some pretty interesting companies, you know, and in different uh, VC groups. And, you know, I think now, Usually what happens from what I've seen is, is founders go through this phase, they're raising their seed, series A, series B, and then some sort of exit happens. Uh, and then all that accumulated experience translates into, you know, more momentum, more upward spiral energy to build something else and help other people build out. And um, with, with your fund that you're managing right now, you know, you've invested in some pretty cool companies. I saw SpaceX was there as well as one of the companies. Um, that's actually really impressive. Uh, talk to us more a little bit about that. Like, what are you, what are you focusing on now? What are you building now? I heard you say building quite a few times. I'm not a builder. I'm more like me. I'm an, I'm a pure operator when it comes to the digital and our subsidiaries. Like I operate the businesses really well. I'm not necessarily a builder. I work with a lot of builders, but I'm a, I'm a pure operations kind of guy. So I love to get your perspective now. It's like, how are you building via making these checks of 10 to 50 K and different types of companies? Yeah. Well, first I'll talk on the, the, the operations side of things. I think one of the things that um, made, allowed the companies that I've been part of and start successful was, because um, there's a theme of solopreneurship. And yeah. I think today is a little different, especially with the advent mm -hmm. of AI. Like you can lean on the AI a little bit to right, do more marketing. Right. And there's a lot more tools out there to help yep. you where you don't need maybe a full-time person. I get yep. that. But when I was kind of doing some of these is there's a lot of folks in my, you know, uh, that went and did a, uh, a lot by themselves solar. And, but I always was like, I need people to compliment this. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to be heads down building. You need a good operator. You need a good salesperson. Mm -hmm. Sales is everything at the end of the day, to be honest, it, right. it, it, a, a product rarely sells itself. It, you got to get in front of some people, you know, mm -hmm. you can, you can get lucky and, and get lightning strike with word of mouth, but it's rare. 
So it takes a great sales person and process to scale a company. Um, and so I appreciate good operators and I'm excited that we've connected because I'm going to learn a lot from you. Yeah, um, likewise. And so, but uh, the, the, the world to investing. Yeah. Um, so when Uber kind of happened, that was a pretty major shift in, in yeah. San Francisco and in the whole game. And so I had some friends that were advisors. I had some friends that were able, were investors and a couple of these folks, um, and I also know the like Logan Green and John Zimmer at Lyft. And so same thing. So people are advisors, some people are investors. And I'm like, I know some of these people, but I'm like, you're not all rich. So like, like that are investing in these. Like, so I thought you had to be an accredited advisor and I thought you yeah. had to have like a million liquid. It was just naive, right? I didn't know this, like friends and family thing existed. And, and so I always was told you need to be accredited investor, have to have over a million dollars. Um, so after, um, seeing some folks do that, I learned more, dug a little deeper and realized that, no, if you know, you, you can, you can make some of these investments and, and it's all good. And so I then in 2012, um, um, I was, uh, I had a company called keep and we had incredible talent and the talent from keep is unreal. And, and, uh, a couple of people that I was, um, that I was lucky enough to uh, bring on as the first engineers it was Mitchell Hashimoto and Armand Dadgar, along with um, a, a few others that are, are incredible in their own right. Um, but they had an idea. Mitchell was working on a platform called Vagrant, and we were using that at Keep a lot. And um, I was just like, "You're building kind of like the DevOps of or GitHub of infrastructure here." <laughs> you know, and you should probably go do this on your own. So here he is helping with the infrastructure at, at my company. And, but he was working on this a lot nights and weekends. And you could tell that this is, this was his passion. Like he, certain people are made to do something and his entire ethos and energy was in this. And so I was just like, you should leave and go do that. And he's like, I'm going to do it in a year. Um, but after about maybe less than six months, he came knocking. He was like, hey, Courtney, sorry, I'm going to put in my notice. And I was like, in the back of my head, I'm like, it's impossible to replace him. But I'm also like, good, because he needs to go do this. And so mm -hmm. I, um, and I, it just was kind of like, F it. I'm going to just, I learned that you could invest. And so I just wrote a check. And on the exit interview, I gave it to him and I was like, I'm excited for you. Let's go do this. And Amazing. I'm happy he cashed the check. So I was the I'm first check I'm in HashiCorp. Nice. And but he probably which, wasn't expecting that, was he? Um, I maybe yeah, at the time I think he was uh it's kind of weird to go back and I, I remember the office feeling. I don't remember yeah. his, his exact reaction. I, I okay. it kind of came as a little bit of surprise. Yeah. Um, but also we were just talking about all of this. And at that same time then, and this is kind of how I started my investment journey. I was just like, I took basically 75% of my net worth and I put it into three different um, areas. You know, I put it in 25% uh, into HashiCorp. And then I invested in um, uh, Samil Shah. He has Haystack Fund. And I had him through a, a met him through True Ventures, who backed our company. And they're a great firm and they interacted a lot. And so I got to meet him through some meetup that, with them. 
and he was going to start Haystack. And I was, you know, it's like, I would love to invest. So I invested with him. And then I um, invested in, uh, Angel has started to get a little up and coming. And so I placed some bets early and um, on that, which was like Hip Camp and some other companies around that time as well, uh, with the remaining kind of like 25% of my liquid net worth. I don't recommend people taking 75% of their net worth and putting it in startups, um, but it, it worked out for me. Um, and it was really, I think, you know, talking about moving to San Francisco early, it's being around the early set of builders that kind of define the, 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 just go where the real energy is early and yeah. starting to bubble. And you're going to find I would say the uh, the true outliers that are going to make a big impact. It doesn't mean people right. come to San Francisco are not going to make impacts. It happens every day, but mm -hmm. the it it some of the earlier folks there, it's um, it they kind of paved the way to what we know and assume and take for granted today. Right, and it's so interesting. You talk about San Francisco being a hotspot. You know, even today it's a hotspot. We have plenty of clients from the Bay Area. Um, even just on the outside of the Bay Area, we have a lot of people that we're working with right now. And so uh, we're talking to young guns in their you know, mid-20s. They're creating like the newest type of tech. And, and look, I don't have to understand what it does or how it actually processes that end result. As long as I get the result, that's what I like, right? And so as a marketing agency, as a marketer, they tell us what it does, how it works, all the technology in the end. And then it's our job to say, okay, this is the benefit that the customer gets. Who this is? These are your ICPs. This is how we're going to position this product, you know. And so um, there's a lot of times where there's great builders and great creators, but like you said about the sales part, right? They they lack they lack that. And I'm sure San Francisco does have some pretty good salespeople, considering um, it is a tech capital of North America. And um, you know, sometimes we're in situations where we're dealing with really technical people building out these cool products. Like, for example, now we're working with uh, with a fintech bank for Gen Zers. You know, and uh -huh. um, the founder is in his mid mid twenties and and like super technical, right? And you know, they come, they hire a marketing agency, they want a fancy marketing website. Right. And then, you know, there's a battle between like features versus benefits. How do we yeah. differentiate the two, you know? And so uh, there's a little bit of convincing that has to happen, a little bit, a little bit of serving and stuff like that. Um, and that's always a challenge that we like to do because our role as a marketing agency is we want to educate our, you know, technical founders into how to actually market and position their features as benefits to their ICPs. Right. And, and, um, it's it's a challenge. Let me tell you, Sometimes it's a challenge, it's a and challenge. it's but it's so important. It's like, can you? Super it's important. that elevator pitch. Can you say yeah. something in a couple sentences that's clear as day? That really is just selling the value and the benefit. You, mm -hmm. People like to say, "Hey, we're a advanced, you know, maybe we're not the so Uber of finance, blockchain, <laughs> yeah, blockchain engagement platform." And you're like, "What does that really mean?" People just right. want to know. Are you growing my business? Are you helping me with my customers? And in what way? Exactly. Uh, and and so there's a really cool thing. Um, you you f may have heard of BuildSpace. They, no, um, I have not. Okay, so they, they they have this thing called nights and weekends, and um, they do these kind of seasons. They're going into season four, and they invite people from all over the world um, to participate. These are people who are creating uh, ideas, companies, but it's not just tech. So they have people who will make a documentary, people who will make music, 
people will um, make art. And so it's basically just a bunch of creators getting together and they have, I forget how long the, the program is or, but a lot of people don't make it because you got to show up and you got to be consistent. They kind of yep. prune people out who aren't consistent, um, which is the key to success. Anything in life. The reason why Ease is successful is because I literally, my co-founder, I literally worked every day and made incremental updates every day for right. 10 years. Yeah. It literally took that long. It's right, just, right. No, it's I relentless it. focus. And so they have a cool thing there. And then they bring in guests. And Sean Puri from My First Million had a really cool thing where his whole thing was basically the elevator pitch. Hmm. And he he put people took people out of the uh, – I'll try to link it in the show notes because I point this to people um, because it is such a great lesson on – how to explain what your business does. And he pulled people out of the audience and they were, you know, courageous people to be kind of like in front of a thousand people going, this is my business. And he would do something that was like, does anyone understand that? Like zero to 10. And everyone's like zero, you know? And, and then he'd be like, he would ask a question to the person. They would respond and be like, all right, now say that. Okay, great. Do you get what he, this company does? Oh, it's a four now. Just a couple revisions of that. Now people are at like eight. And that's great in five minutes because as what you're trying to do takes many iterations to get to that nine to 10 level. And it's so important. People have very low attention spans. They're going to go to a web page. They're going to see something quickly. If it doesn't yeah. resonate, doesn't speak the story, kind of confusing, they're gone. And so, exactly. yeah, you, you don't have an easy job. Um, and it's an but it's an incredibly important job. It sounds like you've been reading my tweets. I just recently tweeted uh, exactly what you like, not exactly, but very uh, similar to that. I said something about how your attention span is really, really short and how you have to do it really, really quick on your website, right? Uh, I wrote, where was it? Where was it? 41% uh, of website visitors will click away if the content is dull. Honestly, the percentage should be much higher. Engaging content always comes first. So answer your prospects, burning questions, solve high leverage problems and tighten everything with SEO. This is the way. So it's not just about doing the hard things, right? Like, hey, how do I design my website to look cool? Think about it. The moment you land on the website, you see that hero image. If uh -huh. your attention is not met within three seconds, and your interest is peaked. There's a good chance you're not going to scroll down. You're going to exit right away, right? Yeah. And go to a competitor page, right? And a lot of B2B SaaS companies that we work with before working with us, they 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 ha they come with those, those ridiculously high bounce rate over 50%, right? Think about, you know, that top of the funnel. If you can make your top of the funnel bigger by 50%, from 50% down to 25% bounce rate, you've just increased your business and the amount of leads that you mm -hmm. have. You still have those same metrics, right? And that's usually the first step that we do for, for any kind of client, right? Look at their traffic sources, what's their most visited pages, and just increase, make little iterations at the top of the funnel, the middle of the funnel, the bottom of the funnel. Then we go into the sales process and post sales, and then from there, reiterate, right? And so, um, yeah, you're, you're totally spot on. It's like all about positioning, capturing the attention, and holding the attention for a conversion to happen. Yeah, totally. No, it's it's uh, it's great, and it's... it's um... And that's one thing that like a lot of folks need because when, when I was building the company and for mm -hmm. example, what we did with ease, um, kind of a unique thing that we did is we had incredible designers at the, at, at, I actually, I was the first designer so, and I sucked. So we started with no design 
and we were profitable. Mm -hmm. So if you have a product that works, technically design and that doesn't matter. I'm proof of that. It was table, yeah. row, cell. I showed someone and they were like, we're throwing up. There's like, I, it was, I, I, I suck at CSS even after all these years. <laughs> um, but, um, and that was the first version. Then we went in, um, we worked with a guy named Adam Kopeck, who's an incredible designer and, and done a lot. And then um, we ended up hiring Metal Lab. Mm -hmm. and, and that really kind of put us on the map and, and helped us um, do that. And it's refining that story over time really helped us um, right. get, I guess, the product feature sets and, and the, the, the time to aha moment for our customers a, a much faster. Right. Courtney, I know I asked a lot of questions throughout this Vesa Talks, but what's one question I didn't ask you that you would ask yourself? Hmm. Um, the, what were, I guess, some of the more challenging times while building a company, you know, what mistakes did you make? Because mm -hmm. we, uh, a lot of these conversations come off like, oh, great, yeah. we built, we sold, we implemented yeah, yeah. every day and that's all you have all to do. All the positivity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of, uh. There's a lot of gut punches throughout the years as well. Okay. So g give me a scenario where you literally turn shit into sugar. All right. Um, okay. Uh, I like this. Well, it's, it's not. It's, Our audience it's, does too. It, yeah, yeah. So here's a, this is one thing. And, um, and it was a mistake by myself and my co-founder, like no one else on this. Um, but, you know, we're working through forecasts and things. Um, and this is after our series B round. And... So we have a lot more capital. We're, we're flush with cash. We have some growth numbers are good. We have some features coming up. We have some clients, some partnerships that are about to, you know, um, be ready. So we have some big growth numbers that we want to hit up that we forecasted. And it didn't happen. We grew. We grew faster than what we were doing before. But um, we, we took that money. And we hired a bunch of people and our forecasts were wrong. You know, my co-founder and I made mistake and, and we, we waited, uh, like a quarter, not even a quarter, um, a couple months and we're like, this is going to be bad. And so we had a, a you know, kind of early board meeting because you don't, the worst thing you can do in a board meeting is come with, uh, unknown bad issues. So you gotta, mm -hmm. you gotta tell folks early. Bad news early always is better. And so um, basically what we had to do is, is right size the ship. And so I think one thing that we made a mistake on is um, not, not being constrained enough with capital and not being constrained enough with um, some timelines. And so as you're, as you're building and as you get some success, as you raise these funds, People, you know, we're kind of told by venture capitals, but it's really the founders are in control with this. We go and then deploy the capital for growth. It's, it, it can work many times, right? You got, if you got something that's working, great. But if you don't have something that's working, even if you've had past success, don't do the constraint bubble. Just give it like, pretend like you're back in the day is bootstrapping. Right. And 
I think that, um, cause that hurt. Like we had a, we had to lay off a lot of people that were really talented. Mm-hmm. Um, we just hired some of these folks too. And it's like, you just feel like a jerk being like, come on board. And then three months later, you're like, sorry, we made a big mistake. That is not cool. And, and, um, you lose trust in the team. Um, but it's the best thing yeah. for the business. And so constraints matter. Like, I think the average company will do better with constraints and, and, um, but, uh, you know, it's constraints with the safety net are amazing and we should have done it that way. And, uh, instead we were just like to the moon and you know, you, you, you can uh, crash. Now we're really happy that we made the decision early enough where it didn't harm us, but, um, uh, getting the team dynamics right is very difficult. It is not easy, especially if you have big growth targets. Yeah. And even in a marketing agency of investor digital size, mid market, it's even this is hard. We're delivering a service and, you know, our, our product is, you know, creative hours using that towards a service. And even that at some level is gets complicated how to manage different deliverables, dependencies, someone gets sick, someone's not able mm-hmm. to make this call, then the client can't show up, then it pushes back a lot of things in our production for other clients. And there's a whole enigma of problems, right? That, you know, one little thing can cause. And I like what you said about setting up constraints and safety nets. How would that, how would, how would a constraint look like, for example, in a, let's say a marketing agency in a safety net, if from your experience, although I, I'm not sure if you, I worked in the, yeah, agency. I don't know the marketing probably... agency side, unfortunately, okay. I can say like how it would work for us, you know, yeah, you have a, you guys? yeah. So a way that I would do this would be like, okay, we need to hire X number of, uh, SDRs or X number of mm-hmm. salespeople, um, start slower. Like you don't need to hire 14 people. Mm-hmm. Hire three, <laughs> right? Like if you had right. the budget for fourteen, you can start smaller and and make sure that those incremental people are not breaking your internal systems. Because a lot of times you don't think about like the added headache to HR, the added headache to uh, manager ratio, and and it's a lot of nuance that some people are really good at naturally, but many people aren't. And, um, and so, and when you have to promote someone who was an IC into a manager, that transition doesn't always go well. Mm-hmm. So you think you have the playbook that you're going to run and it, it like reality doesn't always, that story won't always, um, uh, turn out the way you want. And right. so, cause it, it's, uh, that person needs extra training. They actually want to be an IC after six months because they hate all the one-on-ones and they don't feel like they're contributing like they used to. It's a real common thing. And I, I, I had to learn a lot of this. I'm, I'm not even an expert after probably all these years. Um, I'm better than I was and, and I'm confident I can build small teams. It's really hard to build a big team. And so that's, that's, uh, that's where I would leave some constraints. Some other ones too is, it's better to blow out expectations than uh, in forecasts than miss them. And so you want to have a, a kind of like a the blue sky story than then a kind of internal goal that's still pretty high for your team because you're if you don't if you don't try really hard and get people uncomfortable, they, they are not going to come up with this ingenuity and innovative ideas because yeah. yeah. 
you know, you, you always hear the story of uh, um, and being biased towards action. Like you hear mm -hmm. the story. I don't know if it's a myth or if it's real, but, you know, Elon Musk with the boring machine, you know, he yeah. wanted to know how long it would take to drill for 20 or 48 hours or something over a weekend. And they're like, cool, we'll call the city and we can do this in a couple of weeks. And he's like, can you do it today? Like, why can't we start today? And so, yeah. you know, apparently what, just a few hours later, they're digging in the ground. Like that kind of thing happens when um, there's constraints, like he had a constraint right. on time right? and just asking that. And so right. that's another thing too, is when we're product building, can we build things faster? What can we do to get in front of a customer quicker? Let's right. use a feature flag. And instead of this thing being a quarter before we're going to like get it out there, what can we do in this sprint to show it to a potential customer in app? Right. Great. Like, let's do that. And, and those are some constraints that I think can really help uh, move a company forward um, without, you know, burning lots of money or time. Awesome. Thanks for that, Courtney. That was really insightful. You know, I got a lot of value just from this short 45 minutes that we've been speaking. Uh, I can't wait to just kick it with you one day in person and just like sit down over a couple cold ones and or coffee or whatever you drink. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and just really like go a lot more thorough or even like do a podcast like this because um, I, I can tell by the stories you have, all the experience that you've accumulated. We're just scratching the surface of really what's possible. And, you know, this was this was really great. I want to thank you again. Uh, for being a guest on our, on our show. I, I'm sure our audience is going to get a lot of value from this. And uh, yeah, I really hope to you know do this again soon with you. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. I'm glad we connected and, and thanks for having me.